Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Hi, everybody. Oh, actual flesh and blood human beings. <laughs> just suddenly noticed there are actual real people. Um, I'm so used to seeing just heads and shoulders on screens. It's just a bit of a, it was a bit of a shock for a second there. <laughs> it's lovely to be with you. It's lovely to be here again um, and to, to be together. Yeah, as Ed said, we're continuing our series in uh, the letter to the Ephesians. So um, if you have a Bible to hand on your phone or any, I'll trust you, they're not on Facebook. I saw Tom go straight for his phone. So this is the moment to pretend that you're on, you're on the Bible when you're actually on Facebook. Um, or I think there are some Bibles available at the back if you, if you need one. The text will also be on the screen. So um, I'm going to be sticking quite closely to it. I'm trying to make sure mine doesn't pop open. And you'll find the letter to the Ephesians towards the back in the church Bibles. It's page 882 if you're looking for the, for the place. But we're in Ephesians chapter 2. Bear with me one second while I get my paperwork sorted out. In Ephesians chapter 2, and we're just going to be looking at a couple of verses towards the end of that chapter. So Paul is writing to um, the church in Ephesus, which is one of the, the big metropolitan, uh, metropolitan areas, really important city um, in um, Asia Minor, so kind of the mo- modern Turkey type area. And he's writing to them, and as, as Ed just said, one of the big concerns of this letter is about what it is to be the church. Um, and he uses a whole bunch of different metaphors and images. It's absolutely wonderful to read through the whole thing and see all the different ways in which he describes the church. Um, and as we're about to read, he's about to introduce a brand new metaphor to his, his conversation with the, with the Ephesians about what it means to be church. And I'm picking it up at verse, uh, verse 19. And he says, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We're going to spend a few minutes just looking at that wonderful, wonderful truth that we are the dwelling place of God. So as we saw last week, um, one of the ways that we can describe churches as a family, that we are God's people, God's household. Uh, And Tom helpfully helped run through almost the entire Bible and how that message about uh, the church as a family is so important. It's one of the most important images of what we are. God's people... Notice the people, not the place. God's people as a family. As is one of the reasons why Christians have always called each other brother and sister. Falling out of fashion a little bit. I still try occasionally to call people brother. Um, sometimes as a reminder to myself rather than as a reminder to the other person. To call people brother or to call them sister. But as a reminder that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're joined in him. We're family. Paul now quickly shifts the metaphor from a family to a building. And he starts talking about foundations and stones and buildings and this kind of thing. So he moves from a kind of um, kinship family metaphor to an architectural one, that we are a building. Now he's got one particular building in mind, as he says towards the end of this little passage, and that's the temple. So it's not just any old building he's thinking about. It's a very particular, a very special building. He's thinking about the temple that we looking around at you all, we are the temple of the living God. 
I'm pausing because it's so easy to forget how crazy that sounds, that a bunch of odd folks on plastic chairs in a slightly chilly today room in the middle of a nondescript suburb of, of Bristol are the temple of the creator God. So what we're doing right now matters enormously as we gather together. Now, the Ephesians knew all about temples. They knew better than most. Ephesus was, after all, home of the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Destroyed and rebuilt a couple of times, it was known the world over. Any board game fanatics may know it from the Seven Wonders board game, uh, which is when it's one of the cards. It was huge and famous. Um, Paul had a couple of run-ins with the people who, who liked uh, the, the goddess Artemis and were very fond of the temple. It was the thing that made them famous, known the world over. But Paul's not just thinking about any old temple. He's thinking about the temple in Jerusalem, which had a very particular history and a very particular story. Um, built originally as a tent, according to the pattern that was shown to Moses on the mountain. It was then built again um, under Solomon as a building, which was then destroyed and then rebuilt famously as the people returned from exile. And it was much more than just a building. So what was the temple? What, why did it matter to the Jewish people, of which Paul was one? Well, it was a place of access to God. It was the place that you went to bring your prayers, to bring your worship to God. It's the place where you, you had access through the priesthood to him. Because it was the place where God had chosen to dwell. It was a place of his presence. God was there. You went to the temple and in the Holy of Holies, his presence dwelled. The fire that fell in the pillar and the cloud that guided the people through the wilderness, then dwelt in the Holy of Holies, in the tent, and then in the temple. That he was there. The Lord was there in that place. It was a place of his presence. His glory was in that place. So it was much more than just a place of worship. It wasn't just like a cathedral. It wasn't just a place that you gathered to worship. It was a place where God had made his home. And far more than that, because of the way that it was built and the instructions that were given to Moses, it was a copy of the heavens. The Jewish people knew what we all know, that no building on earth can accommodate God. But yet God in his mercy had shown Moses the pattern for the tabernacle and said, build it like this. This is why we've got all those chapters with all the details about how long every pole has to be and how big every curtain has to be. We kind of think it's a little bit OTT on the detail, unless you're an architect, in which case you probably think, no, detail matters, get detail wrong and you're in trouble. But it matters because you are building a, a copy of heaven. And if you're building a copy of heaven, you want to get it right. Every inch matters because you're copying the place where God truly dwells. And in his mercy, earth becomes then his footstool. And the holy of holies in the middle of the temple becomes the umbilical cord between heaven and earth. The place where the lifeblood of heaven flows to earth and the praises of earth return to heaven. They're joined. The rabbis called the Holy of Holies the navel of the earth. It's the place where heaven and earth are joined together. The life of the two is joined in that place. This is a lot more than a building. 
And so when the people of God are described as the temple of the Lord, that is what's going on. It's a place, we are a place of access to God, of God's presence. A place, believe it or not, if you look around, you feel free to look around at each other, a place patterned after heaven. A people patterned after the life of heaven. But of course, for all of that wonder, the temple wasn't the point. The point of the temple was to point beyond itself. It stood as a promise. Because as we've just sung, the promise was that the glory of the Lord that dwelled in the Holy of Holies would one day cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The temple pointed to the future, pointed beyond itself. It was only the copy of heaven. And the future was the joining of heaven and earth, the coming together so that the Lord's presence didn't just live in one place, but spread to the whole earth. And so we as a people, if we are the temple, and we are, are a promise of that and a sign of that, of the presence of God. Yes, the presence of God here among us now. And my prayer is that you experience something of that. But that isn't the point. That's just the sign of the real thing, which is the, 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 the world full of his glory, the hope that we have. So to turn very quickly then to our text, and just to run through three little points, what does this mean? That's the big thousand-foot view of what, of what Paul is talking about. But notice how he actually explains it to the church in Ephesus. He gives them three architectural features. Have we got any architects or engineers or structural engineers in the building? Because I'm in trouble if we do. All right. Please don't shake your head vigorously. I mean, I do this sometimes when people preach. So, okay, it's fair enough. If you Try not to be too vigorous with the head shaking. Um, there are three architectural features that Paul takes in order about what it means for us to be this building, to be the temple as people. The first is the foundation. It's a good place to start. You start with the foundations. Get the foundations wrong and the whole building is going to be weakened. It doesn't matter how beautiful your building is. If it's not on strong foundations, it's going to come cracking and creaking down. So we start. I'm getting nods from the architect. Yeah, I, thought, I thought I was on safe ground with that. So we start with the foundations. And in verse 20, in the beginning of verse 20, Paul tells the church in Ephesus that our foundation as the people of God, as God's temple, the foundation are the apostles and prophets what does that mean? This is the trickiest one, actually. And I didn't have anywhere near enough time to study it. And I'm going to continue to think about it. But what I think is going on here is that we are told that the witness, because that's what prophets and apostles do, the witness of the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New, to God and to his life and to his truth, forms a foundation for the life of the church in Ephesus and for us today. We're founded upon their teaching, their witness, their lives. And we have access to that in the Bible. The witness of the prophets of the Old Testament, of the apostles of the New, is found in the pages of Scripture. We have access to that witness, and that is our foundation as a community. This is a people that should be founded upon the Word of God. It is a strong foundation, it is a sure foundation, and Ephesians 2 verse 20 tells us it is the foundation of the temple of God, which is his people. 
The church is built upon nothing less than Christ. Yes, we're coming to Christ, don't you worry. But on the witness to him in the Old and New Testaments. So maybe it's time for a survey, a kind of a structural integrity survey. How are your foundations? How well do you know the content of the witness of the prophets and the apostles? How much time are we spending reading that? How much time do we allow that to saturate into our lives? How strong are those foundations? Individually and as a community, how much time do we spend as a church with the Bible open in front of us, listening to the witness of the apostles and prophets? Because if we get that foundation wrong, it doesn't matter what else we do. If we, don't, if we aren't founded as a community on the witness of the apostles and prophets, our foundations will be weaker than they should be. And it doesn't matter what else we build. How good are our foundations? How good are my foundations? How long do I spend Bible open, studying and listening, listening to the voice of the apostles and prophets? Second thing, the verse continues. If the foundations are the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. Now here, Paul follows his own advice and he picks up a theme from the prophets. Specifically from Isaiah. And in chapter 28 and verse 16 of Isaiah, the Lord says through his prophet, See, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone, a precious chosen stone. And the psalmist picks it up in Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The builders would have picked the best stone for this job and they rejected the one that the Lord had chosen. But that rejected stone became the cornerstone. In planning this at the very, very last minute and grabbing, stealing some blocks from, from um, the kids' room, I neglected to think that I would also be holding a microphone. So it was already going to be challenging enough to show you this. I have no idea whether anybody's going to see this, so I'm going to use this table. I apologize to the guys with the camera. You're going to have to think fast, like the guys at the Olympics when someone falls off their bike and they've got to quickly think fast. Can you see that? Guys at the back, can you see? These are my foundations, right? I'm lining them up. If I, if I, oh, shaky, shaky foundation here. There we go. This is my cornerstone. It's the squarest and best stone you can get hold of. You pick this one out specially. It's got to be strong. It's got to be straight as a die. Because if you get that wrong, two millimeters off in the corner and 300 meters down at the other end of your foundation, you're off by yards. So you put your best stone. Your, your builders pick your best stone to put in the corner of the foundation, right in there. Because that stone will orient the foundations. And it will orient the vertical of the building. You've got to get that one right. It has to be the most perfect stone. The stonemason would spend forever getting that one perfectly square. Because if you make a mistake with that one, the whole building will be off. You with me? That's the cornerstone. And the witness of the prophets and the apostles is that Christ is that cornerstone. The stone rejected by people, but chosen by God. And it is he who anchors together the witness of the Old and New Testaments the foundation of the church. And it is he who directs the growth of the church. Everything we do as a community and as individuals must be oriented to the cornerstone. 
If you don't orient your life, and if we as a community don't orient our life to the cornerstone and to Christ, we will be off. We will be wonky. And I don't want to be in a wonky church. I want to be in a church oriented to the cornerstone. And I want to check it every time we lay a stone. Every time as a community we lay a stone. Something we should do together. What shall we do about this? What shall we do about that? This is not just a message for the leadership of the church. This is for all of us. Every aspect of our life together needs to be checked by the cornerstone. Is this oriented to Christ? Who is the one who orients the foundations and the growth of the building? As Paul goes on to say, in him, that is in Christ, the building is joined together. And in Paul's language here, he really emphasizes the together part. The, the, the words he chooses to use draw on the connection between us. That this whole building, as it grows up from the foundations, this unfinished building of God, as it is founded upon those foundations and oriented to that cornerstone, is built together in Christ. It is not something you can do on your own. My old pastor used to say there are two things you can't do on your own. You can't get married on your own and you can't be a Christian on your own. You can't be a Christian alone. I can't. I've tried. It's, it's impossible. But theologically, you cannot be a Christian alone. You're together, like it or not, you're together with me and I'm together with you. We are being built together as God's temple. We need each other. We need to gather together. We need to respect, I'm just thinking of the particular moment at the moment, respect the people for whom that is incredibly difficult right now, for whom that makes them incredibly nervous or for whom it's incredibly dangerous. And we act with as much love as possible in this weird time. But we must not think that we're allowed to forget the importance of gathering. Even if for now that gathering has to be via video. We are still gathered together because we're being built together. Peter, who wrote the, the various letters, but in First Peter he talks about us as living stones. That God is building this temple, with not with bricks, but with living stones. We are those living stones being built together to be the dwelling place of God. It's not something that we do. We don't build the church, thank the Lord. We don't build the church. He does. He is the one who is built. He's the architect. It is his grand design, not ours. And he builds with us. I'm not one of the best stones in the world, but yet in his mercy, he builds with me and he builds with you. By his spirit, we are being built together. And why, and this is the punchline and the point of the whole thing at the end, in the end of verse 22, it says, why are we being built together? To become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Because we're not just any old building. We're a building designed for the dwelling of God in his glory by his spirit. That we are being built as a temple. Not just any old building, but a place where God will dwell. A holy temple. A dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And this takes us full circle back to where we began. Of what a temple is. A place of access to God as we gather together. A place of God's presence. And we've tasted something of that in our worship this morning. 
But it's also a place of a, that it's a promise that we aren't the point. The church is not about the church. It's not about us. It's not about my fulfillment, my experiences, my therapy, my whatever. I don't come here for me, as we sang at the beginning of our worship. We're here for him. The church exists for God as a sign of what he is doing in the world, of his presence in the world, and a promise that he will one day fill the world with his glory as the waters cover the sea. That's what we're here for. That's what it means to be the temple of God. So we are his handiwork. We are his building. Funny old lot that we are. God is building us by his spirit to be a temple in which he dwells, founded upon the teaching that we find in the scriptures of the apostles and prophets, oriented to the cornerstone that is Christ, in whom we grow together to be a place where God will dwell his presence by his spirit among us. Now, if that's not enough to make you think the church matters, I, I don't know what to say. That is astounding that a bunch of odd people on plastic chairs should be the dwelling place of the living God. I think I need to pray now. Would you join me as we pray together as those being shaped as his stones? Loving and living God, thank you that you would choose such cobblestones as us and shape us to be the blocks that rise to become a temple in which you will dwell. Would you continue to knock off our lumpy bits? Would you continue to knit us more closely together as a people, each of us forming part of that building? And would you, in your mercy, choose to dwell amongst us that we might be a sign and a beacon to the world that God is not absent, that he is present here among us and promises to fill the world with his glory. Loving God, would you continue to give us a taste of that glory and would you continue to build us together in Christ by the power of your spirit to be your temple. Amen.